Hi, and welcome to the Hollywood Dreammaker Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Gallo. I'm a 35-year veteran actor. I'm the kid who came out to Hollywood with 200 bucks in my pocket and a one-way ticket when I was 18. Didn't know a soul out here, and I've been living my dream ever since. I've had an amazing career. I've been an Academy Award-winning film, blockbuster film, hit TV series. You name it, I've done it, and I got the IMDb credits to prove it. Six years ago, I opened up my own school, the Manhattan Actors Studio, where I found my true passion. That's teaching the craft of acting, but I'm only teaching the craft of being the guy. Success leaves clues. I know how to make dreams a reality. I did it for myself, and I do it on a daily basis for my students, and I can help you achieve yours. Welcome to my podcast. Let's get started. I am super excited to introduce my guest. He's an actor, musician, songwriter, producer, restaurateur. He's a legend in Philly. He's the founder of the cheesesteak franchise, Tony Luke's. Some of his film credits are Gotti, Tenth and Wolf, Invincible, The Nail, the story of Joey Nardone, which he wrote and produced, and he played Joey Nardone. He's a great friend of mine. I'm super excited to introduce Tony Luke, welcome to Hollywood Dreammaker. Ah, oh, Billy, it's so great to be here. It is so good to see your face, my friend. It's good to see so your face. Good. It's been a minute. We've been, I don't know, it's been, Jesus, 10 years maybe? Maybe about 10 years, yeah. And you've been doing so much. We've both kind of been, we've been on this road. And, you know, the road takes you. That's the one thing about life that took me a long time to understand. You, you can focus on the journey, but you still have to be open to the fact that it may not go down the roads you want it to go down when you want it to go down. And if you're open to that and you embrace those roads and you understand those roads, that, that road doesn't necessarily mean it's going to take you out of the place that you're, you're trying to go. It just means that there's something here that you need to learn in order to get closer to the road that you want to get to. I love that. Listen, I created the Hollywood Dreammaker podcast to inspire young artists to follow their dreams. You know, if a guy like me from Brooklyn, New York, from a broken home can come out to Hollywood with 200 bucks in his pocket and become a working actor for the past 35 years and, and make the dream a reality, anybody can do it. If it's truly in your heart, it's your passion, then go for it. It's about inspiring actors, anybody, people that want to be a stuntman, the people that, you know, any part of Hollywood that have that dream. I want to become part of that Hollywood machine. And we met what? We met, uh, we met on a film called Tenth and Wolf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tenth and Wolf was probably 2006, I believe. Yeah. 2005, six. We were both in the film. Uh, we actually had a scene together, which was cool. That's the scene where I killed Dennis Hopper and you set him up. <laughs> you're sitting yeah. there mixing, mixing a martini or whatever you're doing over there. And I come out of the closet and pump a bunch of bullets into him. I still have that poker table with all the bullet holes. It's in my No, you do not. Yeah, I shipped it out. I, I brought oh, it Oh, that's freaking awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of hit it off immediately when, when I first met you. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you remember about that? About meeting you or about yeah, the whole experience? Yeah, just about the whole experience, about 10th and Wolf working on that Well, film. to be honest, with 10th and Wolf, I, I was super nervous because that was really the first film that I was around all of these great actors. So I got to tell you, I learned so much from that movie, so much that, and I, I, I want to talk about it, but I want to get this one point across. I learned so much in 10th and Wolf that it got me the role and the recognition of the movie Invincible because of what I learned on 10th and Wolf. And I learned a very, very important lesson on that movie. It was actually life-changing for me in a lot of different ways. The greatest thing for me about making film is not just the art of making the film, not just the incredible blessing to be able to play these different characters that are so much unlike you. And yet they have to be a part of you. 
which is, is the one of the things I learned about acting that I really, really loved is like well, when people say, well, well, that's not really me. Well, it isn't. And it is because in order for you to truly fit in that character, there needs to be a part of you that is either sympathetic or understanding, even when you don't want to be sympathetic or understanding. But to transform into that character, you can't completely abandon you. You have to become the mindset of that character. And when I was doing Tent and Wolf, I was really, really nervous. And little, little by little, Bobby, who was directing, who, you know. Academy Award winning. Uh, and I, I love, I love Bobby. Yeah, Bobby too. So, you know, and we, we became really, really, really good friends. But in the beginning, Bobby was slowly pulling lines from me and I couldn't understand why. And he didn't give me an explanation. He just was like, don't say the line here or don't say the line here. So immediately my first reaction is to be defensive. Why are you why are you cutting my lines? Why are you doing that? So I got a little, not angry. I just got a little standoffish. Like I, I, I felt very uncomfortable because I didn't want to blow. And I remember Giovanni Ribisi came up to me and he said, um, Tony, is there a reason why you're not speaking now? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, I think you need to. And you should say something. And then I went to see Leo and Leo said to me, listen, you always respect the director because he has the vision. But as an actor, you should at least make your voice heard that you would like to try something and see if it works or if it doesn't work. And if the actor, if the director basically is worth, worth his salt, he wants to get the best performance that he can. And he wants it. Some directors, which you've worked, I know I've worked with, where they're very much, this is how I want it. Do not deviate from that. Do not deviate from the script. And other directors are, if you feel it, do it. Maybe we get some magic. And Leo said, you should at least say it to Bobby. Now, Again, this is my first time, and I think I came off wrong. I might have came off very like, well, listen, I think I should say something here, and I'm just going to I'm going to say it. Now, you know, Bobby, <laughs> this is not a guy that you say that to. No. <laughs> and he taught me one of the greatest, when I tell you it was the greatest smackdown I've ever gotten. In anything I've ever done, he was very, very calm. I, I, I told this story to a couple of people. He was, he was very, very calm. He said, you want to you say something here? No problem. Tony, let's, let's do some rehearsals. You come out. And I told Bobby the same story. You come out and he goes, you say whatever you want. So I get the cue. I come out. I start doing my lines with Giovanni. And Giovanni goes, Tony, that was great and I go he goes that was good Tony let's try it again I do it a second time he goes now let's get it down like let's really get it down and I said okay now meanwhile I feel like I'm the king of the roost here like yeah yeah we're doing what I want to do I do it the third time he goes all right so now let's put one on film and he goes that he goes sound speed he goes Tony shut your mouth and don't say a word action and i was just like oh my god in front of the entire crew it was like he played me so well nice. it's like here and behind the door going i got this i stood up and he's like tony shut your mouth and action to come in and i and i realized the delivery there there, there would have been a much better way for me to go to bobby and to explain the idea that I, and later I found out why my lines were cut and I got it. Like I completely got it. And I said to Bobby, I just wish you would have said that. He goes, I, 
I, I couldn't tell you during the filming, he said, Tony, but, but you understand, you know, do you understand why? And I was like, oh, ab- absolutely. And it, it really made sense and it made me feel so much better. But that movie gave me the confidence going into Invincible. Now, if you've watched the movie, I'm 400 pounds in the film. I'm balding, hardly any hair, but they wanted me to do spots of hair. So they send me a page. So they send me a side. Now, all your friends, I mean, everyone in acting knows what is what sides are. So they can't, it was one line. So they can't send me one line. So they have to send me a page. And on that page was a character named Alice Cooper. And he was like six foot something, long hair down to his hip, in a green outfit, rooting to try out for the team. Here I am, 5'9", 400 pounds, and bald. So I read it and I go, I don't want to audition for the one line. I want to audition for this role. And the casting agent said, Tony, you don't fit the role. I'm like, I know that, but I just let me audition. You talk about wanting to get something and wanting the dream. It was like, no. And I said, well, please, I'm asking you. She's like, you're going to waste your time going up there because you don't fit the character at all. And I'm like, then let them tell me no, but just give me the opportunity to audition. I go in, who's in the waiting room? All these tall, skinny guys. And they must have looked at me like, what is he doing here? <laughs> like, do you have the right time or whatever your audition is? I walk in, I do the audition, I give you it everything. Like, did I you got. wear the cape? <laughs> I didn't have the cape at the time. <laughs> so I, I give it everything I've got. Diane is hysterical laughing, filming it. She goes, Tony, I loved it. I loved it. But you don't fit the role. I said, all I wanted was a chance to do it. About two weeks later, I get a phone call that the director of the movie wants to see me. So I walk in, I'll never forget it. And he was sitting behind the table and he said, Tony, I have a dilemma. I'm like, what's the dilemma? Do I find an actor that fits the character or do I make the character fit the actor? And I'll never forget, I said to him, so you called me down here to tell me I didn't get the role. (laughs) And he said, give me one week to decide. Don't shave and let your facial hair grow. And then I got a call a week later for the role. That's awesome. And I if, got and, and and you stole the freaking movie because that character was hysterical. <laughs> you know, when the tryouts, <laughs> I love it when you run into the, the bag and you fall on your ass. <laughs> you know, and it's it, funny, the funny part with that is it was only that one scene. And when I did it, the director said to me, Tony, this is not a comedy. And I said, I'm playing him straight. Yeah, but it's funny. It's funny because he believes that he's. And he pushed back a little bit. And I said, just let me do a few tapes. Well, very, very nicely. Very <laughs> I learned. And I said, if you're open, let me do, you know, what I feel. Then whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I did it. And he said to me, come back tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. And I said, I'm done. Matt, come back tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. So I go back at 7 a.m. Here I am on the field. I don't know why I'm on the field. And he goes, what do you want to do? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I want to film you trying out. So what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm 400 pounds. Why don't I run at the bag and can't move it? Like, I'm so out of shape that even at 400 pounds, I can't. And then I did the whole day. And he said, come back tomorrow. And I'm like, I gave come back tomorrow. So I did the scene where. I, I ripped the cape off and then I brought it to bag and then I, I flip and he said, I want you to push and shove because you didn't get the part. You know, you didn't get the, uh, the, the spot. And I said, I don't think he would do that. And he goes, well, what do you think? And I said, I think he would be really distraught because I feel like he really believes he's a great athlete 
And he's such a great director. And he said, you know what, Tony, let's give it, let's try that. He said, so when it happens, I want you to just pick up your cape because it was on the floor. He goes, pick it up and just drag it as you walk away. (laughs) And I remember picking up the cape, my head down and dragging it. And they wound up, Billy, they wind up keeping every single scene. That's awesome. Yeah, but that's, you know, it was your choices is you fighting for that role. Like you wanted it. You wanted to let me please let me try that thing. And what you did is you changed their mind. I tell that to my actors all the time is look, casting think they know what they want. You know, they have a, maybe an idea in their head, but it's you, the actor that has to come into the room and change their mind. Show them who the character is. And you do that by the work, like creating the character, knowing the backstory of the character. I mean, you knew who this guy was. He was a guy that played high school football that had a dream that he could play on the Philadelphia Eagles. And, and he was, you know, 400 pounds and he was out of shape. But, but he believed it. I mean, that's what made that character so funny. You know, it was, it was a memorable role. But, you know, listen, I, I want I jumped ahead. You know, I just want to know the dream. When did you know that you wanted to be an actor? How what was the, your journey? You know, what did, how did you go from, oh, I want to be an actor? Listen, I knew I wanted to be an actor when I was a, a little boy. You know, when I, when I was 11 years old, they were making uh, a movie in my neighborhood. I got a small part. I got bit by the bug. A year later, Saturday Night Fever was filming and John Travolta came out of his trailer. And I looked at it and I was, oh, this is what I got to do. <laughs> so when did you know? Mine was a little sadder, actually. I was a very overweight kid. I got made fun of all the time. And I would sit in front of the television set and I would get lost in the films. I would get to be all of those characters. And I wouldn't be me. I didn't want to be me. I wanted to be anyone but me. So while I was watching TV and I would watch the sitcoms and I would watch the films, I would envision myself as someone else. And I felt better about me. And then when little things would come up, I always loved to sing. So when stuff would come up, I would be the first one to jump on and go, let me try to sing that. And what I tried to do was took the kids from making fun of me to entertaining them. And then they weren't making fun of me anymore. Then it was, hey, Tony's hilarious. You got to bring him over. He'll make you. Do you hear Tony sing? Oh, my God. So I used whatever little bit of talent that God gave me. I use it as a mechanism to fight back so that I, I wouldn't be picked on, that I wouldn't be bullied as a kid. And that fantasy of being an entertainer, because I knew I loved acting, but I also knew I loved to sing. And I knew there was music in me as well. And back then, and you can attest to this, even though I'm, I'm older than you, you can definitely attest to this. There was this weird mentality when we were kids that you could only be good at one thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, if you're good at this, this is what you do. Everything else you do is a hobby. It's just a hobby. And I kept fighting that. I'm going, no, I love acting and I love music. I love telling stories. Why do I have to choose one? Why can't I do what I love to do? If I put 100% in on everything that I'm doing, why can't I do it? And as I got older, when I would speak to kids in school, I would tell them that. I'd say, don't let anyone tell you that you have to be locked into one box and that you can't come out of that box. Because if you feel like you got to break out of that box and there's other things you can do, then do it. And that gave me the confidence to get to know who I was. And through that, I gained strength in me. And I learned one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned in my entire life, that fear, intimidation, low self-esteem, wanting to be alone because you're afraid to be around people, worried about what someone thinks of you. All of those things you do to yourself, you do that because you allow someone else to make you see you the way they see you, not the way that you are. And when I got past that, everything changed. 
confidence in my music, confidence in acting, confidence in writing. Because it was like, this is me. If you think I'm too heavy, not my problem. If you don't like that my head is shaved, not my problem. If you don't like the way I speak, not my problem. Those are all your problems. They're not my problems. And when I did that, it was so freeing, Billy. It was like the chains were off because the biggest mistake I think we make as artists, no matter what genre we're in, is when we allow fear of what someone may think, we don't go past our boundary. Like we don't, we don't stretch ourselves because you know what? We don't hit a home. I write music. I don't hit a home run every time, but I still swing at the ball. Whether I miss or I don't, I still swing it. When we're holding back because we're worried about, well, maybe this won't work or maybe that won't work, then we never grow out of that little circle that we put ourselves in. We got to bust out of that. And once you realize that you are, there is no bad, you know, I tell people, there is no bad music because I may not like the music. That may not be my genre of music, but I'm not the be all to say all what is great music and what is not. As long as you're true to who you are and you give it 100%, you will always find someone that appreciates what you do. Beautifully said. I believe that. Yeah, it's beautifully said. Listen, you know, I, actors tell me all the time, well, you know what? I, I, I'm not going to get, I don't lose the weight first. Or, you know, I'm, I'm going to get the hair implant that, you know, I'm like, no, you, you be you, man. You're perfect. Just the way you are. Don't wait. If this is in your heart, this is your passion. This is your dream. Go stop making excuses. It's not, it's not about, I know plenty of actors that they work because they're heavy. They work because they look a certain way. I know a ton of guys that, you know, they're the go-to guy. When they're looking for a heavy set guy, they go with that guy. He's working all the time. So, you know, don't let, don't put limitations on yourself. Don't stop yourself. Or one day I'm going to do it when I do this or when I get more of this or that, you know, you're perfect just the way you are. That's, I, I truly believe God created you perfection, a miracle. You're just perfect the way you are. And that's your star power. Nobody's got what you got. This is who you are. Everything that happens to you in your whole life, the good, the bad, the ugly, all that shit, that's your gold. That's what you bring. Yeah, you create the character, but you bring your soul. You load it up with your truth. And that's when people feel you because you're being truthful. You're not acting. And listen, I know I hear you because I was the same kid. I was a skinny little kid. I was bullied. I was called names or whatever. I was uncomfortable in my skin because I was believing the shit that people were telling me. I would much rather become a character, be somebody else. I'd act a, a, a clown in school, whatever, to get the laughs to, so I wouldn't get bullied. But, you know, all of that stuff through my life, all of that stuff, it fueled me because all those people that laughed at me and told me it couldn't be done. Oh, yeah, haha, I didn't get a part in that school play. I had to pull the frigging curtain. Nobody, you know, it was like all those people didn't believe in me. So it just fueled me. So I was like, okay, well, I'll show you guys. I'll show you. So it, it, it motivated, it fueled me to prove them wrong. The only problem with that is, is when you get it, then you go, is this it? Because you were doing it for the wrong reason, because you were doing it because you wanted to prove it something to somebody else. So my advice is, is it's got to be for you. It's got to be in your heart. It's got to be in your soul. This is your passion. Don't do it for anybody else. Don't do it because you want people to like you. Don't do, you know, don't, don't care what anybody thinks. Just be you, be you, be truly you. And if you can give that, if you can give your truth, your soul, who you really are, because, you know, you're not your thoughts, these the little noise in your head. You're not that. So if you can really come from your heart and, and your joy and play and, and the passion for that, the craft, that whatever it may be, music, acting, whatever it is, whatever your passion is, if you work from there, that's a powerful place to come from, not you from know, your head. Exactly. And the arts, what I love so much about the arts, which is sometimes I get so worried when I hear people want to take arts away from school or they they kind of push the arts aside as if it's just some extracurricular activity. But if you look at the arts in general, the parallel between life itself and art are identical. As an actor, you strive to grow, you strive to be more open, you strive to understand the character more. You learn to accept that character. You try to find the commonalities in you, even when it's very difficult to find the commonalities. And I'm going to bring up 
there's no way we're going to do this without me talking about your character in the nail because it was it was an acting lesson for me to watch you and there's those commonalities but in life in general billy right i mean isn't the goal to always be striving to be a better version of who we are Absolutely. you know so if we're doing that with ourselves and we're doing that with our art there's no limitation i mean if i'm the same tony if we talk five years from now then i failed i failed at life i failed because I'm not the same Tony that knew you 10 years ago. I, I, I hope that I'm a better version of me. I know that I have a long way to go, but I hope that I'm always growing, that tomorrow I'll see things a little bit differently, more understanding, more sympathetic, more empathetic to things and to bring that in. And never, I mean, obviously, I, I, that's the one of the greatest things you learn from acting is Soak it all in. Soak it all in because be a sponge. you're going to have to pull. You're going to have to, you're going to have to pull from something and understand. And the more empathetic you are to someone's plight, the more you understand why people react or do what they do, especially in acting. If you take that, you don't just go, I have to talk about it because this is where this came from. When we wrote the part, for your character in the nail. The okay. sides were very simple. You were an abusive father. That was the character. You had a violent temper. You beat the kid. Because that, and you're what? You took that violence out on them. So I don't know if I ever, I think I know I did tell you this because it blew me away when you did. So all of these actors came in and it was so predictable and I'm not putting them down. It was just like they read the side and they read, this is a horrible human being and he's all of these things and he's going to, and every single take that we watched of every actor that came in, it was, you're going to the game with me and you're going to be, you know, your, your guy got you the damn tickets and when, and they got nuts and grabbed the kid. And, you know, after a while I'm watching, I'm going, okay, Next one, next, get next, 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 next. And then here you come. And I don't even know if you remembered what you did. I don't. <laughs> Billy, it was, I remember looking at Leo and I went, oh, that's it. Like, there he is. You went, and I'm assuming, because I don't know how any other way you could have done it. You knew this guy. Like, it was almost as if you knew when you sat down at that table with the, those tickets, you were the most beautiful, loving father any child could ask for. Hey, guess what I did? Guess what I got? I got tickets to the game and we're going, me and you. Yeah, well, dad, I got plans that day. No, no, it's, it's me and you. We're going to the table. You know, we're going to the game. I love you. You're my son. I love you. This is my time with you. You were so sweet. And he's like, no, I got things I'm going to do. And then like a switch in your eyes, you were like, I got the tickets for the game. You don't appreciate what I'm doing. No, it's not that. Well, it is that. And then all of a sudden, there it goes. It wasn't this crazy man who liked beating his child. It was this man with this this pride in him and and the way he thought things should be and it wasn't his son to him saying i don't have time to go to the game in his head he heard you're not important enough dad for me to change and i said he just gave the father the whole character of this the the, the whole mindset of this character is he loves this kid he really believes in his mind that this is the way He's supposed to raise this child. Do you remember what you said to me last year? I bet you don't even remember that, do you? I think I said to you, I can't wait to shave off this goatee and cut my hair because I was just this character. It was probably the toughest character I ever played. I don't know if this was you, but it was just for me, 
to play and abuse it. I just gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. I became a father for the first time. And I had to leave my baby and go to Philadelphia to make this movie. And I'm a method actor, you know, so I, you know, that character was just, uh, he loved his son. He, he did, was, but it was twisted. Know? Yeah. And it came from maybe wanting to, it was like a rejection for him because he wished he had a father like that. He wished he had a father that would would have bought him tickets. So when his son rejects him, he feels the rejection of his father. So the pain was so deeply rooted that I'm trying to be a good guy. I'm doing this out of love. But then you you just you got you angered me because <sighs> you hurt my feelings. I want I just want to be loved, you know, so I couldn't look at the guy as a bad guy because it was kind of written a little one dimensional, you know, like he was just abusive, you know, and I didn't see the character like that. I see saw him as a father who loved his son and he beat him because he wanted to make him a man. He wanted to put him on the right path, show him how, how, how a man behaves. So it was done out of love, not out of anger. No, it was, it was, in fact, my mother came to the set and we were all eating and she's the sweetest woman ever. And you know, I love you. And I think you are one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever met. You're the kindest. You're, you're just an incredible. And I felt that way the moment I met you on 10th and Wolf. Like there's certain people I meet and I go, we'll be friends for the rest of my life. You would well, never. I, I feel the same way about you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. But on when she came to set, and I want people to know that when he says he's a method actor, he is a method actor. My mother, who is the sweetest woman in the world, she I, I introduced her to Billy, and he was eating. And he was, how you doing? And you know, he was eating, and he just wouldn't break. You know, he was just his character. And she pulled me inside. She went, I don't like him. <laughs> he's not a good man. And I went, no, he's an amazing human being. Like, no, he's a bad man. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's his character, Ma. It's his character. He's a great guy. So you were, and I, I remember you saying to me, the last words you said to me that I remember was, I said, it's a wrap for Billy and everybody clapped and it was great. And I said, Billy, let's go. I said, let's go get a beer. Let's go. And you went, Tony? All I want to go do is go back to the hotel and take a shower. Oh, you can edit it out or you can beep it out. But you said, I just want to go home and take a shower and wash this prick off of me. That's what yeah. you said to me. I just want to go take a shower and wash this prick off of me. Because I was living that prick for months. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I yeah. felt like I was so relieved when it was, it's a wrap. I can, I can, I mean, I became the character. I walk like him. I had the accent, the hair, the thing, the whole thing, you know, that I had become another person during that time. And it was, it was, it was tough. It was a tough role. I mean, the, the scene where I'm beating that kid down and, you know, oh, I, it's so hard to watch. Yeah. It's, See, it's, there's people that literally turn away yeah. during that scene. You know, I, I had a, I had a hard time in that movie because I, I was, I kept trying to, you know, the director, Quattrochi, I, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I kept coming to him and telling him, listen, I want to, I want to, I want to, I wanted more of that, you know, the tickets, that kind of stuff. I wanted more so you could see the other side of this guy, you know, that he, he, he really loved this kid, but he was like, no, <laughs> you're the bad guy. We need you to be the bad guy. You know, yeah, you, have he, to, you have to be the bad guy. And it was such a, I talk about, I, I was like, I literally talked to him like for hour. Like I was, we got to give, show another side to this guy. And he was like, no, you're the bad guy. It's not going to work if anybody has, feels anything for you. Because when my wife hooks up with your character in the film, you know, it's, it's got to, that's the only way it's going to work. So you have to be the bad guy. But I was struggling with that because I wanted to, I didn't want it to be one dimensional, one. But you wouldn't allow me to curse. Like in the scene, I, I wanted to curse. He's like, no, 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 you can't curse. And I'm like, no, I'm making No, 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 you, no, they have to love you. Like the soul of Christian virtue, like you can't, they've got to hate him and they've got to love you yeah. or it doesn't work. Yeah. And I was like, I, but I can't even say at least, no, you can't, you've got to pull back. So he did the same thing with me. Me wanting to show a little bit more of a tougher side, 
And he was like, no, 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 you're, you can't be that guy. He, he knew what he wanted. And I think the film worked because the chemistry worked between all of us. It just worked. Yeah, and it had a good cast. I mean, you know, the film did. I mean, I mean, it, it's it's got a, a a four star rating on Amazon. They still watch it. If if nobody has seen the film, it's called "The Nail: The Story of Joey Nardone." It was written by Tony Luke. It was produced by Tony Luke, and Tony Luke stars as Joey Nardone. And you did an awesome job in that film. I mean, you really the character what you created, you know, really beautiful work. I was, you know, it was a it was an honor to work with you. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy on how that happened. I mean, we worked in like 2006 on this 10th and Wolf. We kind of, I mean, look, 10th and Wolf had a great cast. It had Giovanni Rabisi. It had Brad Renfro. It had Brian Dennehy, Brian Dennehy Leslie Ann Leslie. Warren, Dennis yeah. Hopper, uh, Tommy Lee, Dash Mihawk. I mean, it had such a great yeah. cast. The actress that played, uh, who's the actress? Oh, uh, Parabo. Um, yeah, Piper Parabo. Piper Parabo, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it had such a great cast. We had so much fun. I mean, I got to tell you, some of the most memorable, I have some amazing memories from that film. I don't know. I hit it off with Dennis Hopper. I mean, me and him kind of became like best friends. <laughs> He's a good dude. He was the greatest of greatest. I mean, he is a legend. I mean, legend. I mean, he was with James Dean and uh, he was with Marilyn Monroe. He was with Brando. I mean, the guy's the legend of legends. And you would think a guy like this would be, you know, an asshole because he, a lot of celebrities are. But he was the sweetest of sweethearts. And we hit it off. And I remember one of the most memorable days for me was the time when I went to I went to a, uh, a, we were in Pittsburgh. So I went, we went yeah. to, we went to the Andy Warhol Museum. They were doing a, an exhibit that, of a film that he did with Tarzan and Jane or something like that he did with Andy Warhol. So now we're at the Andy Warhol exhibit and we're walking around the thing and they have this little glass thing with little picture frames, you know, where you put the dollar in mm -hmm. and you get the four pictures. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at the glass case and there's Dennis Hopper in the friggin' 70s, 60s or whatever. There's pictures of him in this glass case. And then when we walk out, there's a photo booth where you put the dollar in. So I said, Dennis, come here. Let's get it. Come in here. And, I, and me and him jump in and I'm feeding the dollars and we're making goofy faces and stuff like that. I'm here with a legend. All right. Yeah. Then we went, after that, we went to a Pittsburgh Pirates game, okay? And then after the Pittsburgh Pirates game, we had a poker game. You remember the poker game? I mean, yeah, was <laughs> You were there? Yeah. It was that me, was you, Dennis yeah. Hopper, Bobby. I mean, we, we had a, the greatest poker game. I lost my shirt to Dennis Hopper. I didn't give it, I didn't care. It was just an amazing day. You know, that, that, that's that, one of my know. favorite memories, the poker game. Yeah, we had a great time on it. I mean, that film was interesting. That had a great cast. I mean, it had uh, Giovanni Rabisi, James Marsden. Uh, That's right. Jim Jameson had as well. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. So uh, Brad Renfro. God rest Brad Renfro's. He was, he such, was a such a talent. powerful actor. God. Such a talent. So talented. Oh, my God. You know, can we talk about that a little bit? Because I know, listen, Brad Renfro OD'd. He was maybe, what, 25, I believe? 25, yeah. 25 years old, super talented. I mean, he had some great acting credits, but, I mean, some of his performances in his film, this kid just had a gift. He was really, truly talented. I mean, you watch his work in Tenth and Wolf. You know, he, he does some really beautiful work in that film. I don't, I don't know if you remember, but I was kind of his protector, his bodyguard. I was the one pulling him out, you know, making sure he'd show up to set the next day yeah. because he, he liked to, you know, sit in a bar and, you know, party. And, and so I, I was really trying everything to keep him on the, the right path. Unfortunately, he, he, he OD'd from a heroin overdose yeah. at 25 years old, you know, and I, and I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it in Hollywood. I've seen, you know, listen, I was there when River Phoenix died outside the Viper room in Hollywood there is that side of it. You know, there's, you know, I've been to those parties back in the, you know, the day when I used to run around Hollywood. Fame is sometimes a double-edged sword. Some people don't know how to deal with fame and they, they turn to drugs. And, and I've really seen heroin destroy many, many lives.
And I know you know firsthand what that feels like. And, and I know you recently lost your son to a heroin overdose. I did. Yeah, I'm so, so sorry for your loss, Tony. Thank you. You know, you know and you, I'm really proud of you because what you've done is you've really become a voice, an advocate for, I think it's what is, the hashtag is brown and... Yeah, we did, um, when it first happened, um, the one thing that I'm, that I, I, I feel blessed that happened was before Tony died, I got it. Like I didn't, I didn't get it prior. I didn't really understand what addiction was. I didn't understand what self-medicating was. I, I, I really didn't understand it, but as it went along, and that would be a, a I'll cut it really short because that could be an entire other podcast. But when, when he died, obviously, you just want to die. I mean, I, I don't have, I couldn't put it any plainer. You just, it's over. You know, you carry your kid to a grave. It's, you know, there's, so two things happen. You die or you die, but you stay living. So when he died, you don't even, you, it's not even a cry. You wail. Like it's a pain that is, it's indescribable. I can never, there's no pain that I've ever felt in my entire life that has even come close. It's a gut-wrenching, soul-ripping pain that comes out of you in a, in a wail. You're, you wail. You don't even cry. You, you, you wail. And I realized that you just want the pain to stop. So any way that the, you can make the pain stop, you do. And it's funny because it made me understand my son because he just wanted the pain to stop. And that's why he self-medicated. And at that point, I was like, I'll do anything other than wake up tomorrow. Like, I just don't want it. And now I have two other children. But you don't think that in that moment, you just want to die. And I remember stopping everything for, I think it was about three months. All you do is you, you sit on the couch and you cry. And then you fall asleep on the couch crying. Then you wake up on the couch crying. And this is the cycle that just never, it doesn't end. So after the third month, I went to the store, to one of the restaurants. And I knew I had to do something. I didn't know why. And an elderly gentleman came up to me. This really changed everything. And he said, Tony, because when he died, it made every newspaper and every, like, I got bombarded. It, it, went, every, it went everywhere. Magazines were like everyone was calling. So I knew that his death made an impact as far as people looking at it. So I could have shunned away from it, which I did. But then when this old guy came in, this older guy, and I was sitting at the table and he said, hey, I heard you, I saw in the news your, your son had passed away a few months ago. And I said, yeah. And he said, because they never said how he died. And he said, do you mind if I ask you how he passed? Was it cancer? Did he die of cancer? I will remember this till the day I die. And I said, no, he died of a heroin overdose. And he got really upset. And he went, see, damn it. Do you see what they do? Do you see what these kids do? How they hurt you? How they rip your heart apart? And all I could think of was, wow. This is the way they looked at my son every single day of his life. Like he had to live with knowing that everywhere he went and everything he did, that's what everyone was thinking. And I thought, someone suffering from addiction judges themselves 
a million times a day. They don't need you to judge them too, especially if you don't even understand what's going on. And I knew then that the heroin took his life, but the stigma is what killed him. And I knew that they didn't need another foundation and uh, another, uh, you know, and, and another fund to put into for, for rehab bad. Like there's, t- there was tons of them and, and they're always doing, I said, God is telling you, you have to make people understand what addiction is. Like they don't get it. They get, they have 40 years of what addiction looks like from movies and TV shows, but they don't really understand. They don't understand the mental aspect of addiction. They don't know. They don't have to agree with me, but I just want to at least open up a line of communication so that people can at least hear me. So that's what I did. And I started and I spoke and then I, I would get, I got phone calls from parents all over the country calling me and saying, what do I do? I lost my son. I lost my daughter. How, what do I, and I said, listen to me. Every day that you stay standing, every day that you stand up there and you fight, every day that you try to make it a better place for those that are struggling, then your child or your loved one would not have died in vain. I said, but if you go in that corner and you crawl and you die, then they die with you then. Because as, as long as you're still standing, they're alive. They're there. They're, they're, ma- they're making a difference. Their death is impacting people in, in, in a way that they weren't able to do when they were alive, to make those changes in other people. And then something strange happened. I realized that the music, all my life I never understood why I wasn't allowed to make it. I got signed to A&M Records in 1985, and then everything not in my control went wrong, and it died. Then Island Records picked me up, and everything in my con- out of my control. And I remember saying to God, why? Why would you give me this gift to write music, to play music, and then never allow me to do it? Like, why would you do that? Like, I- I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I put in the work. I've done the jobs. I've been there. I've done it. And every time I failed, it was nothing that I, it was always this person died. The A&R guy that signed you got fired yesterday and all of his projects, like nothing that, you know what I mean? And then I realized it was never meant because see, then it was about me. Then it was about Tony Luke Jr. being a recording artist, Tony Luke Jr., being a great songwriter. Now it's about Tony Luke Jr. using the gift of his music to touch other people's lives, to make them open up their minds to a situation, to let them know that they're not alone, to let them know that there's other people that are suffering and they're not, they're, they're, there's help here for them. The, the music was the gift, but the gift wasn't for me. The gift was for everyone else. And, and I did a video which I don't know if you've seen, but if you didn't, you should get a chance to look at it. I redid Make You Feel My Love from Bob Dylan's Make You Feel My Love. And what I did was I brought all of these families in that had lost a loved one, that had lost children, and I brought all people in were in recovery, some that were still struggling, some that were in recovery for 10 years, some that were in recovery for 10 days. And I we redid it. I did it with a friend of mine named Dan Morrow, who's a brilliant musician. And I started to play it. And then everyone else would sing it. They would mouth the words. These were real families. And on, it blew up on Facebook. It just exploded. And then I put it on YouTube after. Because then people were like, why don't I, with Facebook, I want to see it. And I put it on YouTube. And it wound up getting like 14,000 views because I didn't put it on until late but it got hundreds of thousands of views on Facebook. And they started to show this video at all of these recovery events that they would put it up on the screen and then they would play it before I even came out to speak. And people were like, I knew that the music would say in that three minutes what I couldn't get across in an hour. 
And if you get a chance, look it up on YouTube. It's, it's Make You Feel My Love by Tony Luke Jr. If you don't understand addiction or you're still struggling with it or you really want to learn a little bit more about it and understand it, it's definitely a video to watch. And it had such great success that I decided that I would devote my time to writing music. And when I say I, as corny as this sounds, it's, it all comes from another place. I just opened myself up to receiving that gift. And then I, I played on the piano. And then I, write, I, then I write it. And God has put a lot of amazing musicians in my life to help me. So I put all of these songs together. And I went to a brilliant producer named Joe Niccolo, who owned Roughhouse Records, who's responsible for the Fugees and Criss Cross. And, you know, he's the one to produce Billy Joel's Make You Feel My Love and River Joe, like all of these. And he said, Tony, what do you want to do? I said, I, I just want to lay these tracks down and I'm, I'm going to release them. And I believe that if God wants 10 people to hear it, 10 people will hear it. It's not about me. It's not about being famous. And I went in and I, I laid the tracks down and he called me and he said, I want to sign you to Blackbird Music. And I'm like, who? And he's like, you. I'm like, I'm 58 years old. No one gets a record deal at 58 years old. That train, that train left the station decades ago. And he went, no. This music needs to be heard. And I have a reputation, Tony. So don't think I would throw my reputation away because I like you. I didn't spend 45 years of my life building up a reputation as one of the biggest producers and mixers and record labels to do you a favor and put out an album so that my friends could call me up and go, are you nuts? Are you losing it? He said, I know why you want to do this. And this music needs to be heard. It let does. me put it out. Hey, let me, let me, I just want to interject. Okay. You know, yesterday you, you, you sent me a song that you wrote called heroin and it comes from the point of heroin. Yeah. And when I heard that, it brought tears to my eyes. It was such a powerful song. It was so well-written, so beautifully performed. I mean, it just, it's just a beautiful song. I mean, it's a powerful song. Your voice you're channeling something there, brother. You know, your voice, your soul, you can hear it in the song. You can hear it in the lyrics. So you've taken your, your pain and you've made art out of it. And it's going to touch people's lives. And I'm so proud of you. I can't even imagine what you've been through. But to be able to come out of that and, and share your voice and pivot and know, you know, before it was about you, it was about Tony Luke, you know, I mean, I truly found this with, with me, you know, acting used to be me, 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 ego, 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 it was, it's all about me. But when I got the fame and I got the stuff, I was like, is this it? Because it was just kind of, there was an emptiness. It was like, and I realized I was putting my ladder on the wrong wall and that ladder would never lead to fulfillment. And then I found the new wall, being of service, being able to make a touch somebody else's life, to make their dream a reality, to help them. I truly believe the secret to living is giving and being of service. And so what you're doing is you're taking your pain and you turned it into this beautiful music that people, are go are, they're going to feel it. They're going to be touched. So you've taken your pain and made art out of it. And it's truly amazing. I mean, I wish I, I, wish I could play the song right now so, the, so people can hear what, what powerful lyrics you wrote and, and, and what a beautiful voice you have. I mean, you're multi-talented, Tony. I mean, you, I mean, you listen, you, you, you're a restaurateur. You got a chain of, uh, you know, the best freaking Philly cheesesteak sandwich around. You got a franchise. It's all over the place. You're an actor. You're a songwriter. You're, I mean... I'm really blown away with you. And you know what you said earlier, you know, for me, it was the same thing. When I met you immediately, I knew that you're just a freaking amazing man, an amazing soul. And I'm honored. Listen, I, I don't see you. I haven't seen you in 10 years or whatever, but there's certain people that you meet in your life that you just know it's, it's a brother, you know, it's, you're my brother from another mother. It doesn't matter if I don't see you for 10 years, nothing's going to change how much I love you and how I feel about you. And I feel you, Tony, and I feel your pain. And I, I'm really honored 
that you've you, you rose up you didn't lay down and you know you you, you made this you grew, you grew from this and now you're being of service and you're giving and you're giving your music so i really i can't wait for the album to drop when's the album dropping I and mean, when's this coming out yeah you know it's really funny because i couldn't wait to get the album out and I knew we would be done like in the next couple of weeks. So I knew I could drop the album like towards the end of you know November. And I, you know, I went to Joe and I said, I can't wait the end of November. You know, he's like, you're on a label. I'm like, yeah, I need two months to promote. We've got to get it to every radio station. We've got to get the music to all of the, you know, he said, the label's got to do their job, which is to get your music out there. He said, you're not just going to put it on iTunes and walk away. No one's going to hear it. So we have to, you know, the, the promoters got to get involved. We got to do what we got to do. He, he said, you're, where do you fit? He said, that's what the label needs to know. Because obviously, I mean, you've listened to the music. So my music isn't for 13 to, to 30. It's more like 35 and up because, and I'm not saying there's kids or younger people in excuse me in their 30s or 20s that don't know that pain i'm sure that they do but usually it's it's people a little bit older that have gone through all of that now do i do i wish the younger kids would listen i do but see here's my mindset now billy and it really is i do it for the right reasons it's weird i say a prayer all the time and i pray that god will open up the doors and break down the barriers so that people could hear this music that I know is coming from someplace else. Not from my ego, so that they can listen. And I also know, Father, if it's 10 people or 10 million that you want to hear this, it'll happen. Because in the end, and I believe this, it's not my will, it's his will. This was the time. All those years of music, all those years of doing what I did was for this moment. I just didn't know it because I was so I was so into my own self. I couldn't see anything else around me. And that's the way I go through life now, no matter what it is, whether it's a TV series, whether it's, you know, because I just finished doing Comedy Kitchen, which is going to is going to premiere on Amazon very shortly. Awesome. So you got another show? I've had another TV series, yeah. So, so you've had oh, wait, hold on, you've had a couple. You had where you what you had Franken food. Food was on Spike TV, yeah. And then you had it, weren't you? I mean, I know you'd be Bobby Flay in a that Philly, was the, Philly the cheese. <laughs> but this is actually kind of cool. Like the the first four episodes that we shot was with Nick Swanson and Bill Bellamy and Gina Neely and like all, but you know, all of these great. So what it is is I take famous comics. And they compete against famous chefs. The only difference is the chefs go with the comic who's Craig Shoemaker and the comics come with me. So they want to do a dish. I teach them and then they feed this panel and then the panels judge them. And then the chef comes out and does three minutes of stand up and then he gets judged. And in the end, did I teach the comic to be a better cook? Or did Craig teach the chef to be a better comic? And the show is hilarious. It's hilarious. Absolutely so, hilarious. So when is it coming out? Well, COVID stopped everything. Sure. It stopped the filming. We shot We shot in L.A. I actually, I shot in Napa Valley. The oh, first whoa, 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 whoa. You were in L.A. You didn't come visit? You didn't do that? Well, I was no, in I Napa. Not, I didn't I get a call. I got nothing. <laughs> they had this kind of, we were, you know, it's funny because I'm staying at this I was staying at this big mansion and winery and Craig, my partner's called me up. He's going, dude, what do you think? I'm like, what do I think? I'm in a 15 bedroom home on a hundred acre winery by myself. He's like, yeah, isn't it beautiful? I'm like, it's Shawshank Redemption. I'm from the city. This isn't beautiful. I said, there's no curtains. How are there no curtains? Not one window has a curtain. I literally uh, slept with a, a chair under the door in the bedroom <laughs> with a butcher knife next to me. That's how nuts I am. I'm like, no one's around for miles. Yeah. And he thinks that's heaven. I'm like, no, that's hell. I'm from the city kid. You're a Philly boy. Oh, yeah.
Listen, Tony, I, I, I love you, brother. It's so, it's so good catching up, man. I, I want to thank you. I know it's last minute and I asked you to be on, uh, on the podcast. I, I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and sharing your journey. I, I'm really proud of you, brother. I know you've been through some tough stuff and you're coming out the other side and you're sharing your voice. And listen, just a final thing. You know, if you had some advice to give maybe the younger you or aspiring actors, what, what would that be? Get out of your own way. Get out of your own way. Let Take the ride. Stop driving the car. Be the passenger. And just have confidence in what you do, but understand one thing. This is what I would tell myself. I don't care how talented you think you are. You have to put in the work. You have to put in the work. Well said. Tony, I love you, brother. I love you too, pal. Stay so safe. Good. So good to see you. I miss you. I wish I could give you a big hug. <laughs> Virtual <laughs> hug. Too. There you go. All right, brother. Take care. I love Talk you, Talk soon. Love you. You got it. Maybe when this is all over, COVID's all over, we can get together. Absolutely. I'm down with that. All right, brother. Take care. Take care. God bless. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. Please rate, review, share this with your friends. Subscribe if you haven't. Please take whatever you get from here, the golden nuggets, and apply them to your career. Go after your dreams with passion. Don't let anybody tell you it can't be done. I believe in you. Follow your dreams. I'll see you in Hollywood.